being for what is uh, for us a new academic year, I am going to, uh, I guess, start a new habit on the occasions that I have to speak. And it's going to involve uh, some audience participation, and it will take just a few moments. Um, the reason I'm doing this is not to be novel. In fact, uh, the phrase that I will be using in a few moments is well known. And I certainly don't want it to be cheesy. Because I hope it has some convictions and, and maybe some substance to you. After all, we do come together to affirm God. And before I get into the word, I think it's good to remember what kind of God we serve. The phrase is very simple. It is, God is good all the time. And so what I would like to do is say the first phrase, and then you would respond with the second phrase. And then I will repeat your phrase, and then end with what you just repeated prior to that. So I will say, God is good, and you say, all the time. Okay, now you've got it memorized. I want you to say it now with some resonating conviction in your heart. God is good. All the time. All the time. God is good. Very good. I hope you got an outline as you came in this morning. If it helps you to fill this out as we go through, uh, please feel free to do so. Before I launch into the actual lesson, let me say the obvious. All of those of you who are wearing blue name tags, hope you get used to doing that for just a couple weeks. We will not wear you out with this, but we're trying to simply acknowledge who's new in our midst. We have so many. We know of 150 new students that we know of, that we've been in touch with all summer long, who are coming our way. And that doesn't count all the ones that we didn't know of, freshmen and transfers. Obviously, some of the families are here. We had a move-in day yesterday. Uh, and we know already uh, you're beginning to trickle in. Uh, the floodgates will open up uh, uh, later on this week and it will be chaos, and you'll meet lots and lots of people with blue name tags. And um, uh, we ask that you be patient with us on the front end because we really want to get to know you, and if you let us get to know you, then we'll actually embrace you. And, uh, and it begins at moments like this, and uh, uh, we're just so glad you're here already, and a lot of great things to look forward to. I see on the clock back there that I need to hit the pavement running, so let me go ahead and launch in. You'll be hearing a lot more about this in the next week or two to come. The story is told about a local United Way office that was in a small town, and the people there realized that they had never received a donation from what was considered to be the most successful businessman in their community. And so the person in charge of contributions decided to go and pay that businessman a visit. And he went there and met him and said, you know, we've done some research. And we've discovered that you've never given a penny to charity. I mean, wouldn't you like to give something back to the community? And at that, the businessman looked up and says, so you've done some research on me, have you? Well, did your research reveal that my mother is dying after a long illness and that her medical bills are several times her annual income? And of course, at that, the man kind of looked up sheepishly and said, no. And did your research show that my brother uh, is a, a veteran and confined to a wheelchair? 
And at that, uh, the guy, of course, started to stammer out more of an apology, and he cut him off and says, and did you learn that my sister's husband died in a car accident recently, leaving her penniless to raise three children? And all he could do is just say, no, I'm sorry. And at that, the businessman says, well, if I didn't give them anything, what makes you think I'm going to give you something? (laughs) One thing that we learn going through the book of James is that he is not impressed with appearances. What James wants us to know on the top of your outlines is your religion helping anybody else. To James, talk is cheap. Empty claims are worthless if they're not substantiated. Again, as we're doing it, we're entitling this series on James. If our faith does not hit the streets, it's just not genuine. There's a place located in Shenzhen, China, and a specific place called Luohu Commercial City. It is five floors with 500,000 square feet of what is known as the counterfeit capital of the world. You want an Armani suit? You want a Rolex watch? You want a Gucci bag? Well, you can't get it here, but you can get something that looks just like it for a fraction of the cost. It's the place where you buy the artificial for people who want to look like they've got the real thing, but don't have to pay the price to get it. And it's this very counterfeit spirit that James is having to deal with there in Judea amongst the Christians. And so James raises a question for us here in our text we pick up in chapter 2. And that the question is this. How do you know that faith is real? Chapter 2, verse 14. Read with me. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, but does nothing, and say if if one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, be warm and well fed, but does nothing about the physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by actions, is dead. But someone says, and you begin to realize there's a dialogue going on in this church and what people are arguing. You show, you have faith. I have deeds as though it's dichotomous, you see. And James responds, show me your faith without your deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. Now, this section of James has caused serious theological debate literally for centuries. It has even led some theologians like Martin Luther to conclude that the book of James really doesn't even belong in our canon of scriptures. And in simple terms, you can frame the debate this way. Which gospel is most biblical? The gospel according to Paul or the gospel according to James? You see, if you take a critical glance at what Paul says, for example, in Galatians chapter 2, He says, no, that a man is not justified by observing works of law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And then you see what James says later on here in verse in chapter 2. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Faith without works is dead. 
you can kind of see how it becomes a bit vexing to people in terms of how it appears. And why some over the centuries have pitted James against Paul theologically. Now, allow me just a few moments. I don't want to get caught in the the quagmire of this thing, because this is not the substance of James, but I need to remove the obstacles so we can get to it. So let me just say just a few things uh, about this. As I see it, the question of this debate is this. On which side do works belong? If you stop to think about it, Paul is not going to say that works are unimportant. And on the other side, James is not going to say that faith is unimportant. And so the argument seems really, if you seem to ask me, to, to center around the time frame. That is, do works go before you are saved, obligating God to save you, or after you are saved as a response of gratitude to God? Now, fundamental thought. I believe that the Bible is inspired. In other words, I believe that the Holy Spirit superintended, guided both Paul and James as they wrote down what we call the scriptures, and therefore what we possess in the Bible is accurate in what God originally revealed to those people. You knew this, right? By the way, in the church buildings we might, but we don't out there, so it's okay to say it. So I don't believe that, that, that God turns in on himself and refutes himself as he communicates to us through both James and Paul. In fact, I really see that as being our hang-up, not theirs. In fact, I don't really even see a need to suggest that James or uh, Paul are essentially contradictory of each other. Because I do believe that there was a way of navigating this reasonably. And that is to realize that James and Paul were, very simply, confronting very different problems. You see, they were coming at it from a different point of view. For example, although they use the same vocabulary, you hear the words justification, hear the words faith, you hear the word works, they really had very different meanings when they used this, especially when it came to the word works. This is what hangs people up. Paul, in Galatians, is dealing with a very specific problem. We call it legalism. He calls them Judaizers. And these people had concluded that Christianity was intended to build upon the law, not bypass it. That that you become a more complete believer by believing in Jesus, but not circumventing the law. And so steeped in this long, proud Jewish heritage, this was tantamount to telling the Gentiles who were trying to come to Jesus that you had to be a Jew before you could become a, a true Christian. Not too difficult to grasp, right? On the other hand, though, James is dealing with those who are professing to be Christians, but they weren't living a life of compassion and mercy. Rather, they were content to hide behind orthodoxy and a lot of empty phrases. 
Now, remember, what is James' original audience? Those of you who have journeyed thus far, you should already be picking up in this. It were those who were in the church in Judea, and they were facing famine, and they were facing severe persecution. And so they are strapped by poverty and hunger. That's why I talked about having so many widows and orphans. And there is this, this world of social justice that the Christians are being called to live out in their lives. So, you see, James is writing to a church that's struggling with these things that had a lot of serious needs. And so James' problem isn't the presence of legalism. His problem is the absence of love, of charity. And so whereas Paul used the word works, he's referring to the legalistic efforts and earning some forgiveness from God and obligating him. While James uses the word works, and he's talking about how we should love each other because God first loved us, you see. Now, Paul is inflexibly, adamantly opposed to trying on any level to earn our way to God. But if you pay attention, Paul also vigorously promotes that this grace, this salvation that we receive, generates ministry. In other words, just like James, Paul is not against the idea of good works. And so here's a statement that I think both Paul and James would high-five, shake hands on, embrace each other, and it's simply this. If you've heard it before, it's worth, you know, kind of letting it, uh, 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 you know, ferment in your heart a little bit. We're not saved by good works. We are saved for good works. And there, Paul and James say, amen. Good enough? Can we move on? Now, it's in this context that James places a warning here to those who would pursue a cheap grace, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer would put it. Because it has always been a problem with the church, and that is that a lot of people want church light. You know, they want all the promises with half the commitment. New book came out relatively recently by well-known social researcher George, uh, George Barna. I've quoted from him before, so you should have some familiarity with him. Um, this book is entitled The Seven Faith Tribes. And what he does, interestingly enough, and it's very interesting, is discuss the current religious makeup perspectives of the American landscape. And just so you know, the seven groups identified that make up the American people today are this. Casual Christians, captive Christians, Mormons, Jews, pantheists, uh, turning God into more nature, Muslims, and skeptics. Of particular interest in this study were those called casual Christians because they represent 66% of the American people, two out of three, by this research. And I want you to hear how Barna defines these people as he spoke in an interview. Read along with me. Casual Christianity is a faith in moderation. It allows them to feel religious without having to prioritize their faith. 
Christianity is a low-risk, predictable proposition for this tribe providing a faith perspective that is not demanding. A casual Christian can be all things that they esteem to be. A nice human being, a family person, religious and exemplary citizen, a reliable employee, and never have to publicly defend or represent difficult moral or social choices and positions. Or even have to lose much sleep over their private choices as long as they are well-meaning and generally do their best. From their perspective, their brand of faith practice is genuine, realistic, Practical To them, casual Christianity is the best of all worlds. It encourages them to be a better person than if they had been irreligious. And yet it's not a faith into which they feel compelled heavily to invest themselves. Two out of three in America. Well, it is to this casual view of Christianity that James would speak his words. And that is that works prove whether or not saving faith is actually possessed or simply professed. Faith is like like calories. I've never seen one, but I've seen the results. Now, it might help us to realize in the Bible that faith is a verb. And you don't need to go any further than the obvious place. Go to Hebrews chapter uh, chapter 11, Hall of Faith, and just look at these, these freeze-framed, uh, condensed pictures of what faith looks like. Just listen. Abel offered. Noah built. Abraham obeyed. Isaac blessed, Jacob worshipped, Joseph spoke, Moses uh, refused, uh, Rahab welcomed. Every one of these examples involves what? Some action on their part. Faith is a verb. Now let's be real clear. James is not saying to us here that we need to add some more religious works to our faith. What James is saying is that if faith is real... It already embodies works in the first place. So you're beginning to see the mold that James is creating for us. I'm not done yet. So, what does real faith look like? On your outlines, number one, faith is more than a claim. How does James start? If a man claims to have faith but does not, you see? Look at Jesus. Jesus himself made a point to emphasize that his actions validated his claims to be God. And and you see that in his lifestyle. His lifestyle reflected this compassion, which reflected the integrity of God's heart. And his deeds in the forms of miracles confirmed that what he said was true. You remember what he would say if you go through the Gospel of John? It's well emphasized. He would say, look, if you can't believe me from what I say, at least believe the miracles themselves. The faith, the action. The point being, your faith actions either support or they suppress your words. Right? I like the way the message plays out, verses 15, 14 and 15. Do you think that you will get anywhere in this if you learn all the right words but never do anything? Does merely talk about faith indicate that a person really has it? Isn't it obvious that God 
talk without God works is just outrageous nonsense. There's no such thing as invisible faith. Number two, faith is more than a feeling. Have you ever noticed that when you encounter the word compassion in the Gospels, every single time it refers to Jesus, and every single time it says Jesus had compassion, what always followed immediately? It told you what he did. And if you think about it, Jesus knew when people needed food more than they needed a sermon. Listen to what John says in this context in his first letter, chapter 3. By the way, students, this is one of those memory verses. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Therefore, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions, sound familiar to James? And sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love in word or tongue, but in actions and truth. This, then, is how we know that we belong to the truth. You see, the problem so often is not that we don't have enough resources. It's really that we don't have the right kind of faith, isn't it? Now, this is reflected in a a piece that was written many years ago. It is anonymous. Every time I hear it, I'm convicted by it. And it reads like this. It plays off the parable of the sheep and the goats. I was hungry. And you formed a humanities club and discussed my hunger. Thank you. I was in prison. And you crept off quietly to your church and you prayed for my release. I was naked. And in your mind, you debated the morality of my appearance. I was sick, and you knelt and you thanked God for your health. I was homeless, and you preached to me the shelter of God's love. I was lonely, and you left me alone to pray for me. You seemed so holy, so close to God, and yet I am still very hungry and very lonely and very cold. Number three, and get this, faith is more than orthodoxy. Orthodoxy, uh, confirming and conforming uh, to an approved set of doctrines. Listen to what James goes on to say in verse 19. You believe that there is one God? You hear what he's reciting there? He's reciting to what the Jews was called the Shema. It was the, you know, the Magna Carta, the, the Declaration of Independence, all wrapped in one for the Jews. It's what set them apart from the world around them. You've heard before, the word Shema means here. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And, and so James says, you believe this? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You see... A person can believe the right things and still be more demonic than dynamic. 
If you were to go back through the Gospels and scan over all of those stories where these demons show up, you will note that the demons confess and proclaim a fuller confession of Jesus' identity than even the apostles. In fact, the demons' confessions were not simply recitals of intellectual knowledge. In fact, they were so convicted by it, it caused them, it says, to shudder. Point being is that their belief wasn't passive either. Satan is a masterful theologian. That's why I know that you do not go to heaven based simply on believing some right things. What Satan believes is very accurate. But what he believes doesn't make him a believer, does it? And so, you see, we can confuse knowing truth with having faith. And wasn't that Jesus' point when he told the story of the good Samaritan? A man is mugged and left for dead on some side road. And two Christians, two preachers, a Levite and a priest, walk by. And they do not show any compassion. Now, these two people would have vehemently defended that they had faith in God, and these two people could have passed any test on systematic theology, typically at a seminary. But that man was still back in that ditch. So you tell me what Jesus' point was. Now, it's at this point that James seals his argument by offering his own distilled version of Hall of Faith. Listen, we pick up in verse 20. You foolish man! By the way, literally translated, as you see, hollow, empty, man. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, back in Genesis 15, by the way, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does, not by faith alone. In the same way, Was not Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? Now, James could not have picked two more diverse people in all the Old Testament than Abraham and and, and Rahab. One was a man, one was a woman. One was a Jew, an insider, one was a Gentile, an outsider. One was a patriarch. One was a prostitute. But they carry one thing in common, right? What glues them together is they both had real, genuine faith. Abraham proved his faith was real when he risked 
Notice the word risked his own son. Rahab proved that she had real faith when she risked her own life. Now, that's simple enough. Wade out with me just a little bit deeper into some waters. And notice that James refers here to a moment in Abraham's life found, as I said, back in Genesis chapter 15, when he says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. The point being this. This statement was made long before God was trusted by Abraham to be his travel agent. This happened long before uh, he trusted God to give him a child when, in essence, he was living on the geriatric ward. This happened long before he obeyed God's orders there to sacrifice Isaac. And so Abraham was considered righteous because he trusted God before all this. Now, that's Paul's emphasis. And because Abraham trusted, he naturally acted because it's the DNA of faith. That's James's emphasis. In other words, by his actions, Abraham validated God's declaration that he had authentic faith. And so I end with this question. Do you get it? I don't mean the big picture. I mean, do you get specifically what James is saying to you and to me out of this text? Let me tell you that James is not saying that you need to add some more religious practices to your belief. That's not his point. Have you, if you've been listening to the context, what has James been talking about all along? He's been talking about social justice. He's been talking about the rich. He's been talking about the poor. He's been talking about the haves and the have-nots. He's been talking about the widows and the orphans. So what James is telling us is that real faith takes care of people who need it. That's the point. What would this church look like if we had that kind of faith in this community. Now, listen to Paul embrace this, because a couple of texts as we close. Paul speaks in hyperboles, exaggeration. If I have faith that says to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give everything I own to the poor, interesting, talk about social justice. And even if I go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, talk about commitment. Obviously, motive matters, but I don't love. I've got nowhere. So no matter what I say, What I believe, what I do, I am bankrupt without love. One more statement of Paul. Going back to the very letter where Paul was arguing about, you know, we're justified by grace, faith. When the Christians in Galatia were sidetracked by legalism, And they were going through all of these turf wars, battling with each other. 
Oftentimes, in the midst of crucibles, you get down to what really matters, don't you? And Paul does in this letter, and he says this, and here's the essence. Galatians 5, verse 6. The only thing that counts there in the bottom of your outlines is faith expressing itself through love. That's dynamic faith. And so if we were to trade this off for a counterfeit, you would find that not only is it hollow, but it's toxic to your spiritual life. To bring the point home, James ends this section in verse 26 with these words. The very moment you separate body and spirit, you end up with a corpse. You separate faith and loving, compassionate, merciful works you get the same thing, a corpse. If we can encourage you any way whatsoever as a family of God here this morning, we want you please to feel free to come forward now as we stand and as we sing.